Well, let's pray as we prepare to dig into God's word. And dear God, Lord, we take a breath. We celebrate what you've been doing among us. We celebrate how you've been knitting us together. And as we come to this last week in our series on on spiritual friendship and Christian community, I pray that you would give us teachable hearts. It is a joy to open your word together. So I pray that you would speak to us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So like I said, we are finishing our series on on catalytic Christian community today. And it has been my heart that we would all discover the secret sauce to this life of faith. Which I think quite simply is this, that Jesus never intended for us to go on this journey alone. God, by his grace, has saved us into this faith community, and he gifts us with a new spiritual family. Now we navigate life with with new siblings that are there for us to get to know, to love, to be loved by in return as we all joyfully chase after Jesus together. And we're invited to do life together with Jesus and together with one another as his spirit works among us, shaping us ever more truthfully into the image of God's Son. So we've been exploring that these last several weeks, but I want you, as you think of our life together as Christian family, I don't want you to simply think of, say, like our gatherings around the Thanksgiving table, because there's more to family life than that. From the very beginning, Christ invites us to be companions and co-laborers with him. So last week, we briefly looked at when Jesus first began to gather this new community at the calling of the 12 apostles. And we read in Mark chapter 3 this, and Jesus went up on the mountain and he called to him those whom he desired. And they came to him and he appointed 12 whom he also named apostles so that they might be with him. And we stopped there last Sunday and I highlighted that what has brought us together in the first place is Jesus' gracious desire for us to be with him. But that is not Christ's only motivation. If we keep reading, it says that they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. We are a family that loves Jesus, that loves one another, But we are also a family that loves to labor together, playing our part in our shared mission. And I realized, I was thinking back on my childhood, and I realized I had probably what is an atypical childhood to what most people experience. I'm the son of an entrepreneur, so for me, the notion of family has always been connected to this second notion of a family business, a shared venture that we all participate in together that really kind of orders and shapes our life together. You see, throughout my life, my parents have owned and operated three different businesses. The first was a janitorial company, then an indoor rock climbing gym, 
Uh, Now, even to this day, a construction and commercial maintenance company. And that is my dad uh, with a little less gray than he has now in his hair. But some of my earliest memories were cleaning office buildings with my parents at night when I was just a little tyke. When I was in junior high, I was leading ballet classes and running the front desk of our gym. When I was in high school, I had my own janitorial accounts that I would clean in the mornings before school or or after cross-country practice in the evening. And it wasn't something that I did grudgingly. It was just part of life in our family. These businesses were not only how God was providing for our family's needs, but God was also inviting us to be a blessing out in our community and our our integrity and our excellent service out in the workplace was a means to accomplish that larger family goal of being a blessing. So it makes perfect sense to me with my background that when Jesus adopts us into his family, He also recruits us to play a part in this family's business. And business might be, don't think of it as an economic economic thing. Think of it as something that we do all shared together. But it does lead us to an important question. If this spiritual family has a family business, quote-unquote, what's our industry, What sort of work does this spiritual family engage in? What broader mission orders and informs our life together? And to answer this question, we're actually going to do a whirlwind tour of Scripture because there's three texts that, for me, I think really highlight our shared family venture. So our first text is going to be in Exodus chapter 17. You can uh, flip there right now if you'd like. We will be reading verses 8 through 16 together. So what work has Jesus given us, given this family to do? What is our shared mission? What assignments have we been tasked with? I think this first text will reveal that there is a battle that must be fought. So we are, in a sense then, soldiers, And we read together in Exodus chapter 17, starting in verse 8. Then Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. So Moses said to Joshua, choose for us men and go out and fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand at the top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. So Joshua did as Moses told him and fought with Amalek. While Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. Whenever Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed, and whenever he lowered his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands grew weary, so they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it. While Aaron and Hur, that's the priest, held up his hands, one on one side and the other on the other side. So his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. And Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the sword. Then Moses, the Lord said to Moses, write this as a memorial in a book and recite it in the ears of Joshua that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. 
And Moses built an altar and he called the name of it, the Lord is my banner, saying, a hand upon the throne of the Lord. The Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. Okay, we're diving into this Old Testament story. Let's get our bearings. This battle takes place a few months after God's people's exodus from Egypt. You have this community of freed slaves that's navigating a thirsty desert as they kind of follow God into the future that he's prepared for them. And as they approach one of the desert's few oases, they're ambushed by their bitter enemies and their distant cousins, the kind of nomadic Amalekites. And the assault, it's unprovoked, it's unexpected, and these two forces are evenly matched. It's unclear who will carry the day. And here in this text, we see the community of God's people mobilized for battle. Joshua is down in the valley. He's young, he's strong, he's the field commander, the kind of the tip of the spear. And the elderly Moses, he's up on the ridge, he's acting as command and control. His hands are raised and he's wielding the staff of God. Now the staff of God was just a stick. It was Moses' old shepherd rod back from his days when he was a tending sheep in Midian. But if you remember the story of the Exodus, God transformed that simple piece of wood into a vehicle for his power. Remember, that was the stick that kind of transmuted into a snake before Pharaoh. That was the stick that, that transformed the Nile into blood. The stick that parted the Red Sea and, and caused water to spring from the rock. It was this tangible symbol that the resources of God Almighty were at the disposal of God's people. And when Moses was down in that valley, he was looking up at the ridge. He saw Moses' raised hands. And they were this kind of sign for him of, of divine protection. But they also probably communicated something practical. It was common for a general to kind of stand on a raised position with flags or a staff and, and dictate the kind of signal to the commanders on the field, the course of the battle, how to deploy their various units in the fight. And so it's very likely that Moses is up there communicating, he's relaying divine guidance as he seeks the Lord and as he prays through his hands, and through his signals with the staff of God. And you see, Moses is confident that he and God could take on any challenge, that no threatening foe would be too much for the Lord. But Moses was humbled to discover that he was the weak link in this equation. Even when he was channeling God's power, his arms grew weak and suddenly he couldn't communicate God's holy insights and as a result, there were setbacks and catastrophes happening down in the valley below. 
And seeing what was happening, you have these two priests, Aaron and Hur, and they recognize what must be done. Without being asked, they bring a rock for Moses to sit on. And in what was surely kind of this humbling, embarrassing acknowledgement of his own frailty, they, they physically upheld his arms and they helped kind of marionette him to communicate God's instructions to the people down below so that the armies of Israel might be successful. So what on earth does this old story have to teach us about our shared mission as the people of God? Well, I think it tells us that there is a battle that must be fought. And now we don't battle against Amalekites. We don't war against flesh and blood. It says in Scripture that we battle against spiritual forces of evil that are at work in our world. We have an enemy that is hell-bent, it says in the Gospel of John, on killing, stealing, and destroying. While Jesus, he's in the business of unleashing life, abundant, unquenchable life. And we hear in this text that the Lord is our banner. He is the true leader of this community. He is our true hope in this world. But God doesn't, it seems, choose to just intervene unilaterally and decisively. I feel like he could, could have come down and just, boop, done away with the Amalekites. But instead, God chooses to mobilize his power through a community of individuals who are each playing their own unique roles. There's a battle to be fought with the Lord. You see, this past Wednesday, there was a gathering of kind of local pastors here uh, in, on the hill and down in the valley, and we had a chance to sit down with the uh, Puyallup police chief, and he informed us of a, a crisis that is facing our community. You see, um, Puyallup is experiencing a fentanyl crisis that is resulting in a great deal of human suffering, and it's including... With it, this kind of spike in homelessness, this spike in violent crime, and most troubling, a spike of addiction among our school-age children. And you see, this is the exact sort of battle that Jesus invites us to fight with him. There's forces of darkness at work in our world that are hell-bent on killing, stealing, and destroying And we have a chance to be as the people of God alongside Jesus rebuking the darkness because Christ has already broken Satan's power on the cross. He's already in the process of making all things new. And yes, we will have different roles to play. Some will be in the valley on the front lines. Others will be up on the hill seeking the Lord's insight on how best to proceed, channeling the Lord's power to demolish strongholds. And others will be quietly coming alongside in support, lifting up the arms of those who grow tired, sharing God's refreshment and presence with the weary. 
Part of our family business is that we're called to engage in the battle. And there's a great song we sing sometimes. It's Phil Wickham's The Battle Belongs. And it goes like this. It says, an almighty fortress, you go before us. Nothing can stand against the power of our God. You shine in the shadows. You win every battle. Nothing can stand against the power of our God. And we sing that. And then the last, next line is not, and so we sit on the couch waiting for God to come through because we know he is mighty. What did we hear? God chooses to mobilize his power through a community of individuals, each playing their own unique roles. So instead, we engage in the battle, but we engage in a different spirit. What does the song say? So when I fight, I'll fight on my knees with my hands lifted high. Oh God, the battle belongs to you. And every fear will lay at your feet and will sing through the night. Oh God, the battle belongs to you. Friends, this is part of what it means to be co-laborers with God. We battle against the darkness in our city in hope and in confidence, but it is work. We join with Jesus. So that's the first thing I see in Scripture. There's a battle to be fought, and he invites us to join with him. But to just say we're soldiers is too reductive. There's other pictures in Scripture as well, which leads us to our next passage, which is in Mark chapter 2. And this one rings more true to kind of some of my past experience. Because I've never been a soldier, but I have been an EMT. And what has God given us to do? Here's the second thing I see. There are people who need to get to Jesus for healing, but there are obstacles in the way. So also in this family, we are in a sense then paramedics. And you'll see what I mean as we turn to Mark chapter 2. And when Jesus returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. And they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near to him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, Why does this man speak like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit, that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. 
And he rose immediately, picked up his bed, and went out before them all so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. Notice what's different here. This isn't Moses, this isn't Aaron and her holding up the arms of Moses, someone who's fighting the good fight but is starting to flag These four friends, they come alongside their buddy who is just hopelessly broken. Here is someone who lacks the strength or the ability to in any way improve his circumstances. The only way he can get to a place where he can find healing is for others to bear him. He must be carried to Jesus. But there are obstacles in the way. It's not only the weight of his limp body. It's not only the distractions and the competing responsibilities in the friend's schedules. Other things bar their way. The crowds, the roof, the costs and scandal that come with destroying someone's property. The man's sin. There is so much that seeks to separate him from Jesus. And it's at this point that we often read more into the paralyzed man's story than the text actually tells us. We assume that he somehow plays a major role in his own restoration. We assume that his faith was great. We assume that he's compelled his friends to take him. But the text doesn't actually say any of that. According to the gospel writer, the only part that this man plays in his own restoration is that he allowed himself to be carried to the feet of Jesus. Notice, too, on the basis of whose faith did Jesus forgive this man's sin and and heal him? What does Mark record? When Jesus saw their faith, the faith of the four friends, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. That is unmerited grace. That is favor that is incredible. The faith of the friends so moves the heart of Jesus that not only does he heal their buddy's damaged nerves, he repairs the nerves, but he washes away the stains of his wrongdoing. What was the major obstacle separating this man from a right relationship with God? Do you think your prayers for your addicted grandchild or your hostile neighbor or your seemingly shattered marriage, do you think they accomplish nothing? Think again. Jesus is the great physician and he invites us to be paramedics, to be EMTs, carrying folks to the feet of Jesus who can't get there on their own. This is part of our family mission, what we do together. 
I have an example of this in my own life. Uh, last week, I got to tell you about kind of our non-traditional family that the Lord has given us. And I mentioned uh, Kimberly and Grandpa Herb out in Utah. Kimberly is kind of Brianna's surrogate mother and a beloved sister in Christ. And we get to, in these coming weeks, carry her to the feet of Jesus um, because she's shattered right now. Less than a month ago, uh, her dear husband, Herb, was uh, healthy in hail and then diagnosed out of the blue with stage four lung cancer. Um, and we lost him on Thursday. And Kimberly loves the Lord, but she had to sit at her husband's side and watch him suffocate painfully. And it has left her broken. And it is this beautiful opportunity for us as her spiritual brothers and sisters to, despite the obstacles, transport her to the feet of Jesus. Because yes, her strength might be sapped, but we know the healer. And so we will have an opportunity in the coming weeks to go and to shower her and her daughter Sarah with this costly love because this is the work that God has called us to. There are people in need of healing and repair and forgiveness. And there are obstacles barring their way to Jesus. And while Jesus is the one who deals with their sin on the cross, we have the beautiful opportunity to carry them to his presence. So there's a battle that must be fought. There are people in need of healing who need to get to the great physician And the last work that I see God giving for his people to do is that there is a gospel that needs to be proclaimed. So we're in a sense soldiers, we're in a sense paramedics, we are in a sense heralds of good news. And allow us to skip ahead to Acts chapter 18. And we're going to just kind of skip along the surface of this passage. But we're going to meet the Apostle Paul and other members of his spiritual family. We're going to meet a Jewish refugee couple named Priscilla and Aquila, as well as a charismatic young Egyptian named Apollos. And they're a little crew of four that God has united in mission. And this is what we read starting in Acts 18. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. And he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius the emperor had commanded that all the Jews leave Rome. And he went to see them. And because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade the Jews and Greeks. Then we jump down to verse 18 as we continue with their story. After this, Paul stayed many days longer and then took leave of the brothers and set sail for Syria. And with him, Priscilla and Aquila. And then verse 19, and they came to Ephesus and he left him there, but he himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. 
So we meet Aquila and Priscilla, and they've been kicked out of the city of Rome. They've been persecuted for their faith. If you don't know the backstory, the, the Roman emperor Claudius had expelled all the Jews from Rome, mostly because there had been so many riots in the city as Jewish believers in Jesus as Messiah would go into their synagogue and share He's here. The Messiah that we've been waiting for has come and it would cause an uproar and there would be these furious attacks against these Christians that would spill out into the streets. And Claudius had gotten so upset with all the disruptions that he said, we're kicking the troublemakers out. And he kicked all the the Jews, both the persecutors and the persecuted, out of the city. And so we have these two Jewish believers that are wandering around like nomads. They're, they're trying to scratch out a living in a new city. They seem to be just existing until the Apostle Paul comes to town. And what initially brings them together in friendship and partnership is their shared trade and their shared faith. They all work in leather. They all assemble tents to make a living and Paul seems to come to town and he's looking for a place to stay and he's looking for a way to, to pay his way and Priscilla and Aquila they're, they're looking to kind of have an economy of expenses so they, they join forces and it appears that by the power of the Holy Spirit they get along and they make a good team but the Holy Spirit was even more at work than that Soon they become not only companions and and co-laborers in tent making, but in the mission of God's kingdom. They stop just surviving and existing, and they dive into mission together. You see, we have a gospel to proclaim. They announce to all who will hear that Jesus is the one that both Jews and Greeks have been waiting for. And I love seeing how this plays out in their community as each person kind of finds their particular role in their joint mission. Paul seems to head directly for the synagogue to to reason with folks out in public. Aquila seems so adverse to the spotlight. He seems so comfortable working behind the scenes that he kind of flees to the back of every sentence, it seems, and, and Priscilla, her ministry is more interpersonal and public. She's a, she's a teacher. And we keep reading this in verse 24. Now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus, their new city, and he was eloquent, an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. And he had been instructed in the way of the Lord. And being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And when he wished to cross to Acacia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. And when he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed, for he powerfully refuted the Jews in public showing by the scriptures that Christ, the Christ, was Jesus. You see, this is how this family enterprise is supposed to work. There's no egos. 
Unity is promoted at every turn. They're all growing up in the instruction of the Lord. They're all coached up. They're all continually built up. Strengths and talents are recognized and and individuals are encouraged and unleashed to use their gifts and to seize the opportunities that the Lord opens up for them to share his good news. And you got to realize none of these people were in vocational ministry, quote-unquote. This was no one's jobs or occupations, but this is their shared mission. This is the passion project of the spiritual family, and it ordered and it informed their life together. Guys, we have a gospel to proclaim We herald that God in Christ is reconciling humanity back to himself, not counting men's sins against them. Don't forget, for God so loves this world that he gave over his one and only son to a cross so that whoever would trust in him, whoever would would believe in this salvation that he offers us, Death would have no hold upon them. Instead, they would experience unquenchable, everlasting life, both now in the present and for all eternity. This is our family imperative. We pass on what has been passed to us. We tell the great news that can actually save people. We relate the story of how Jesus died for our sins according to the scriptures. How he was that perfect atoning sacrifice that pays our debts and washes us clean. We tell of how he was buried and on the third day resurrected. We tell of how he was seen again alive in the flesh, victorious over death. And now he sits enthroned at the right hand of God in heaven. And soon he will return to make all things right and good and beautiful once again and once and for all. If you've been with us for any length of time, you've probably heard what is my favorite gospel summary. And it's this, that the gospel is the good news that Jesus defeated evil, sin, and death through his death and resurrection. And he's making all things new, even us, if we receive him. So in this church, we are family. But we're more than that. We're also companions and co-laborers in the gospel. We love Jesus, we love each other, and we also love the work that he has graciously invited us to play a part in. This is our family venture. We battle against the forces of darkness that we see in our world, that we see in our own hearts. We carry the broken to the feet of Jesus so that they might find healing and forgiveness, just as we were once carried to the feet of Jesus ourselves. And we proclaim good news. We announce hope. We throw open the doors to say that you have an invitation to experience abundant, unquenchable life in Jesus 
And we receive that for ourselves as well. This is what life in this family is all about. Grace got us here. Grace sustains us. And Lord willing, the grace of Jesus will flow through us by the power of his spirit. Yes, we are the weak, younger siblings in this equation. We are merely apprentices in the family trade, but God is at work in his family. And he marshals his power through us as we each embrace our roles, as we each make ourselves available for God to use us in this shared mission. Amen? Well, our challenge today is to make ourselves available. But some of you might not be there yet. You might need us to carry you to the feet of Jesus. And may we be that church for you this morning, those friends that say you don't have to do it in your own strength, but here, meet a man who makes us new, who washes us clean. You might need us to proclaim to you that good news that the power of evil, sin, and death have been broken by what he's done on the cross in the empty tomb. And you can be made new if you only receive him. So if that is you this morning, I want you to find me uh, as we sing this next song. I want to be able to help you get to the feet of Jesus, help you respond to the Lord's salvation. But for the rest of us, let us sing, God, we are not just family, God, but you have called us to labor with you. So we, Lord, are available to what you have. So worship team, if you would, please come forward as I pray. God, your grace is amazing. There's a world shrouded in darkness. It seems sometimes our lives are shrouded in darkness. But the battle belongs to you. You rebuke the darkness and you roll it back and you invite us to join with you. God, there are so many broken people. There are so many obstacles to coming to your feet, but your grace paves the way. And your grace works through us to carry one another to your feet. And God, there is good news that you have given us the awesome and joyful responsibility to herald. May we be your witnesses in this world, God. As we hear about our family business, God, may we make our lives and our hearts available to your work. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.